I want you to open your Bible today, please, to Nehemiah chapter number three. Nehemiah three. One of the things that we want to do after Easter, we want to go to two services in our temporary building here. We're preparing for that. Okay, so after Easter, that's about what seven, eight weeks or so. We want to go to two services. We're going to try to do an early service and and a and a regular service, I guess you would say. But listen to me. To do that, to do that, we need more workers. We need more kids workers. And so we're going to be we're going to be talking this up. And what we want to do is we want you to attend one and serve one. Did you capture that? We want you to attend a service and then serve a service that you may serve in kids church or usher, but every, you know, God's done so much in each of our lives that we, we owe him all of our service and every one of us have something that we can serve the Lord with. We have a talent, we have a gift, we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to be working on that. We're going to be talking that up. We're already strategizing. In fact, we've been strategizing about how to do this and what are some of the hurdles to do that. But we want to do that after Easter. And so we want you to be praying about that, of how you can serve in one of those services. You attend one, you serve one. And so that, that uh, is that's going to help us to grow here. And we are going to grow here. We're going to grow here. Our new building is going to be fantastic. It's all, it's all in process. And so, Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah has gone to Jerusalem, and he has a burden from the Lord. Uh, God's put something on his heart. His burden is to rebuild the broken down walls and the burned gates. And over the last several weeks here, we've been talking about the gates. There's 10 gates that Nehemiah mentions there in Nehemiah chapter number three. And what we've been discovering is we've been discovering Jesus in the gates. I heard one preacher did a series on these gates called the gospel in the gates. Old J. Vernon McGee. Remember him on the radio for a thousand years? He was actually a Presbyterian pastor in California. The gospel in the gates. We've titled our series, Let Us Rise Up and Build. And so what happened is these people got excited when Nehemiah shared what God had told him to do. The people took hold of it. Now look at this verse on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 18. Nehemiah says, and I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, and also of the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Now notice this. Notice what the people said. Now, here's how God has designed his church. No preacher ever built a church, certainly not on its own. But we're called the body of Christ. And so Nehemiah shares, the leader shares what God has put in his heart. And notice how the people responded. It said, they, and they said, let us rise up and build. Then they, now look at this word, they set their hands to this good work. Notice that. They set their hands to this good work. To set their hands means they took hold and they wouldn't let go. They took hold of the work. It's a descriptive word. They set their hands to the work. In other words, they started working and they weren't going to stop until the job was finished. It wasn't going to be easy. Later on, we're going to see some enemies named Sanballat and Tobiah. But they set their hands to the work. This describes the determined spiritual attitude of God's people. It literally is a word that means to knit together. 
It describes this. The people of God are knit together in unity toward a common goal, and that goal is to build the walls and to rebuild the gates that need to be rebuilt. I pray that every one of us, even those that are guests here today, come help us build this work. Come and help us set our hands to the work. Let's set our hands. God has told us to put a building on this property. God didn't say it would be easy, but I have faith. How many of you have faith? I've been pleading with this congregation for months. God, give us all a a gift of faith. Faith is trusting God without doubt. Let's believe God. Let's set our hands to the work. Soon we're going to see the dirt move. Soon we're going to see the steel go up, the concrete go up. We're going to see it, and you and your family and us, we're going to have a wonderful place to worship and to bring people to Christ. We looked at several gates. We looked at the sheep gate, which speaks of Jesus, the Lamb of God. We looked at the fish gate, which speaks of Jesus, the one who seeks and saves that which is lost. We looked at the old gate, which speaks of Jesus, the eternal God. Remember he said, before Abraham was, I am. We looked at the valley gate, which speaks of Jesus leaving heaven and coming down, 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 down to this earth, becoming a man, the God-man, humbled himself and became obedient to death. What? Even death of the cross, the valley gate. Then the dung gate, the refuse gate, we looked at last week. Jesus, the sanctifier of his people. See, Jesus not only wants to save us and take us to heaven, but he wants to make us clean down here. He wants us to be so full of the Holy Spirit that we're like light to people all around us because we're living like him. And then we looked to actually skip forward several weeks ago to the fountain gate. Jesus, the great baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Today, we look at this. We look at the water gate. The water gate speaks of Jesus, the living word, and Jesus, the written word. How many of you love the word of God today? We love Jesus, our living Lord, the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But also he's given us what? He's given us his written word today. How do we know that, water, that the word of God is, that Jesus is the word of God? Because look at this verse, Revelation nineteen thirteen. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now look at this. And his name is called, say it with me. That's one of the names of Jesus. Jesus is the living word. He's the word of God. Now notice this. Notice in Nehemiah how the Lord connects this typology in. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 26 and 7. They're again on the screen. Moreover, the Nithinim who dwell in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. And the Decoites repaired another section next to the great uh, projecting tower as far as the wall Ophel. Now notice, I'll have you notice this in a moment, that the, the, this gate didn't need any repairs. They repaired around it, but it doesn't record that they repaired the gate necessarily. They repaired everything around it. And I think the typology is pure as this. The word of God doesn't need to be repaired. Amen. Say amen again. Amen. The word of God doesn't need to be repaired. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We cling to it. We proclaim it. It is the eternal word of God. It doesn't need to be repaired. We need to find it again and just proclaim it. Amen? Here's what, John, here's what Peter, or Paul said, rather. He said and that he may sanctify and cleanse her, talking about the church, with the washing of the water by what? By the word. Thank God that we have a perfect book today. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
You know, you have a perfect truth today. Perfectly tells us about who God is. It tells us who who we are in relation to God. It tells us and communicates to us how to get back to God. So think about this message today. Think about way of introduction. We need the word of God desperately to be in the center of church life. Many churches have drifted away from the word of God. We need the word of God. Why do you think a pulpit has been in the center of churches for 2,000 years and even beyond? Even beyond that, I'm going to show you that in a second. Why is there a, a piece of furniture, this, this table, to, we can put the word of God on and it's front and center? We're not over to the side somewhere because I think the Lord wants us to know that his word needs to be in the center of church life. His word needs to be in the center of our family lives. And his words need to be in the center of each of our personal lives as believers. We need that desperately today. Just as physical water is the vital element to physical life, it produces life, it sustains life, so the word of God is the vital element to spiritual life. There can be no life without water, and there can be no spiritual life without the very word of God, the words of Jesus in 663 of John. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, Jesus said, they are spirit and they are life. I said something last week. I made mention of, of something. I said, what kind of church are we going to build here? Remember that? I said that. What kind of church are we going to build here? And I declare to you, we must build a church where the word of God is central to the worshiping community. We need the word. There is no church. There is no true church who neg- that neglects the word of God or that ignores the word of God. Now, it's interesting as we're looking in this, we're going through this book of Nehemiah, Ezra shows up in this book. And Ezra brings the word of God back into the central part of the life of the Israelite community. Now, the reason they got in the state that they were in is because they began to disobey the word of God. They began to neglect the word of God. They drifted away. God sent prophets to warn them. Remember this. And then finally, God said, because you haven't listened, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. After 70 years, they came back into the land. But how many know that God's going to show them that to stay in the land, you've got to keep the word of God central to the worshiping community? Let me show you what I mean. They had a Bible conference. Now, the, the, the water gate symbolizes Jesus, the living word, and Jesus, the written word. Now, guess what happens at the water gate? They have a Bible conference. They have a day conference in the word of God. In fact, they had one day where they read the word of God and, and did it for a half day. The people sat there and Ezra and all his helpers, they would read the word of God. They would give people the understanding. They would expound the scriptures. And then the leaders came back the next day and said, let's do it again. He said, where is that found? Found at the water gate. Look, at, look on the screen, Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered together as one man in the open square in front of the what gate? The water gate. Let's see what they do. And they told Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law, uh, bring the book of the law of Moses. Oh, that's what you want to hear God's people say. Preach to his pastor. Only one time I heard a preacher said he was preaching at a conference and he preached for like an hour and then he got through and everybody just sat there and looked at him. And then finally someone said, preacher, we don't have anything to do. Could you keep on preaching? Listen, I would die and go to heaven. You get a new preacher. I'm going to tell you it happened. 
But here the people are saying, hey, listen, let's bring this book. And then it said, the Lord command, uh, which the Lord commanded Israel. Verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women who could hear and could understand on the fifth day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in this open square in front of the water gate from morning till midday. And then he also has some helpers there. And they're reading the word of God. And the people are just listening there. And then they're giving them meaning. Here's what this verse means. Here's what, here's what this passage means. And then it says, let's skip down to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people uh, when, he, when he opened it. And all the people stood up. Now, what we also know is that they built him a platform. They built him an elevated platform, like a pulpit, for he could speak. And then all this happened at the water gate. The type, the type is pure in the Bible. So here's the question. Why is the word of God so vital to us? You need to get this today. We need to get this today. In just a moment, we're going to side off on our plans. But what are we doing here? I mean, I, I care nothing about brick and mortar. That, that's going to burn with a fervent heat. But what we're doing here matters. And why is the word of God? Why does the word of God need to be central to us as a worshiping community? There are many things the Word of God does. I could have picked 10 at least. But I'm going to simply give you three things about this Watergate that, that they represent the Word of God. What, what's so important about the Word of God? Three things. Number one is this. Look on the screen. Number one, the Word of God redeems us. You hear that? The Word of God redeems us. Now, when I say the Word of God redeems us, I'm not talking about the paper. I'm not talking about the ink. I'm not talking about this nice leather I'm talking about the truth it contains here. It's called the gospel. Everybody say gospel. You know, the Greek word is euangelion. And it was, it was this. In the Old Testament, when, when the, uh, an army would go out and get victory, and then they'd send a euangelion, they'd send a messenger to tell the people in the city, we've won the victory, and they'd proclaim the victory. And I can tell you this, Jesus came down the valley, won the war, went back to heaven, and now he's saying to us, take the euangelion, take the message to the world, and say, whosoever will may come and be saved. I mean, we're a whosoever church, because the Bible is a whosoever Bible. Jesus is a whosoever Jesus. Jesus can save the worst person in our city. It may be us, it may be me, I don't know who it is, but I know this, we serve a Jesus that sent his message to redeem us. Here's what Peter said. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, here's how we're born again. Here's how we're redeemed. Having been born again. Having been born again. Okay, how were they born again? Is it church attendance? Now, we want you to join the church. I think there needs to be a commitment of the people of God. We have a non-committal a community today in our world, non-committal American community, our nation. We need to be different. We need to be committed to one another. That's why membership is important, but membership won't save you. You, gave, you might have given a generous offering. We had somebody that doesn't even attend this church give a generous offering online to us. They're our friend. They don't go to church here. They worship in another church. People are sending us money that don't even go to church. Come on. They don't go to church here. Come on. Amen. It's coming because God's in this. 
But sit, you may have given a generous offering this morning. That will not save you. What does it say? Born again, not a corruptible seed, but, a, but a incorruptible seed. Look at this. Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God redeems us. The message of hope is in this Bible here. It can redeem you personally, meaning it can save your soul if you'll come and call upon the name of Jesus. But I also noticed this. I've noticed this, and I'll touch on this briefly in a moment. But not only does this a message of redemption with a relationship and, and reconciling us with Father, the greatest thing that could ever happen to a person, the greatest day of your life was the day that you said yes to Jesus. That's the greatest day of anyone's life. But he, he redeems individual people. In fact, that's the only way he redeems. He doesn't, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And you must meet him personally. You must come to him personally. You must confess your sins personally. You must turn away from sin personally. You must have faith and express faith in him alone personally. He has no grandchildren. He can redeem you today. Come on. He can redeem those who watch our online, live online right now. He can redeem everyone that passes this church. He can redeem personally. But I also notice this. Do you know he redeems circumstances? You may be in a circumstance that you may think is so far gone, Jesus can step in and redeem it and bring his people out. Glory to God. Why is the word of God important? Because it redeems us. The word of God is the message of redemption. Now notice this. Contained in the word of God is the greatest and the highest information known to man. Nothing greater, nothing more fabulous, nothing we hold it contained in these 66 books. This is not one book. I hold in my hand today a library. Isn't that awesome? God gave us a library. It's not just a book. Bible means books. I have 66 friends today. These 66 books are our mentors. And what is it? It's the highest information ever known. And it's revealed. It had to be revealed. Why? No one, no one could come up. No one would have ever, no, no man would have ever come up with this on their own if God had not inspired them, if God's revelation had not come to heaven, from heaven down, and, and, and moved the hearts of men by the Holy Spirit. The greatest information known to man is contained in this book today. It tells us how to be redeemed, how to be saved, the water of the Word of God. Now think about it. There is no other place, there is no other place that you can find the plan of salvation than in this book right here. Don't you think this book is important? Don't you think this book's important to your kids and grandkids? More than hours of TV, wouldn't it be better to make them wise unto salvation like Timothy's mother and grandmother made him, the, sharing the word of God with him. The, the Bible is the only book of redemption that has ever been given. It is, it is exclusive and it is a unique book. It is the word of God. There's nothing like it. I have thousands of books, literally thousands, no exaggeration, thousands of books. I could burn every one of those and I'd still be fine because I've got the book. All those books may give a little information about this book, but it's not like this book. This is the very word of God. It tells us why 
This book tells us why we need to be saved. This is why the word of God's important. Why do I need to be saved? Romans says it this way. What then? Are you better than they? Not at all. For if we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, now notice, this is the why, that they are all under sin. Every Jew, every Greek, all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one. Not one human being. People think they're righteous, but that's self-righteousness. No one is righteous outside of Jesus. I may measure myself with you, and there may be some areas that I may supposedly feel better about myself. But I can tell you this. When we measure ourselves against God's perfect righteousness, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No, not one. This is why this, is why this book is important. It tells us why we need to be saved. Verse 11, there is none who understands, none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all uh, become uh, together, become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And in my notes, I underscored all those no's. No, not one. No, not one. No, not one. No, not one. Then he lists some things that all human beings do. Lips deceitful, swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become, all the world may become guilty before God. Here's what happens. When the word of God is preached correctly, what happens is it causes every human being to say, I am guilty. I am guilty before holy God. And then it says, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. This is the why. This is why the word of God is so important. It tells us why we need to be saved, but it doesn't leave us there. Come on, it doesn't leave us there. It's like the story in Exodus when the serpent on the pole, look and live, look and live. It tells us how to be saved. Pastor, how can I be saved if I'm guilty before God? Here's the how-to. Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that. To, to all and on all who believe, and there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice whom God set forth, as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God passed, had passed over sins that had been previously committed. Notice to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he must be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Sees as a quandary. There's a quandary of the, uh, 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 there's a quandary, not to God, but to us. God is just, amen? God is just. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's just. He's not, he's not the big man upstairs. God forbid that people talk like that about God. He's a holy God. He dwells in unapproachable light, scripture says. How 
will God deal with man's sin. The human race deserves complete judgment and annihilation. The justice of God says justice must be done. But God's love's but God's love wouldn't allow mankind to perish. So how is God going to be loving? And how is God going to be just? And what we find is that the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, both the love of God and the righteousness of God was completely satisfied. Why? Because according to this verse, Jesus became the propitiation. He became the mercy seat. The, 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 the sins of the world, all of our sins, were placed upon Jesus. And now, in much more in Romans, but whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Aren't you glad today that we have a saving Jesus? The word of God says that Jesus is a saving Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. The apostles were very clear on this thought. Very clear on their teaching of Jesus in the exclusivity of him being the only savior. I mean, at, at... the threat of death, uh, under the threat of death and persecution and beatings and floggings, they never once compromised the message. May we never compromise this glorious message, no matter what. Peter and them were facing, if you will, facing the same Sanhedrin that Jesus, that had Jesus murdered. And they looked at those and they said, don't preach in this name anymore. But notice this. In Acts 8, uh, 4 and 12, it says, here's what he said. Peter said this, nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven. Nowhere under heaven. Nowhere. Given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name. Come on, amen? amen. So think about this. There's only one plan of salvation. There's only one hope for the world. And it's the message found in this book right here. Listen, there's not five ways to God. Buddhism won't get you to God. New age won't get you to God. False religions won't get you to God. Good works won't get you to God. There's only one ladder. There's only one ladder. There's only one ladder. Jacob saw the ladder. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hallelujah. And this gospel is for the whole world. It's a universal gospel. Go into, all, go into all the world and preach the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Aren't you glad today that the word of God's important because we're redeemed by this precious seed of the word of God. It is a book of redemption. He redeems us personally. But just briefly, let me touch on this. And I won't be long here. But I want to tell you, the word of God Jesus can redeem you out of circumstances. When the, when the disciples were on the sea, the scripture says, they, they woke Jesus up and said, don't you care that we perish? Don't you care we're dying? And Jesus just spoke to the seas. It spoke to the Sea of Galilee. And it, just, and it became calm. And, and, and the same word there that is used for saving the soul, is sozo is the word. It's used broadly because Jesus is not a Jesus that can just save us from our sin. He can save you out of your trouble. 
Come on, he can bring you out in Jesus' name. And so, number one, the word of God redeems us. Number two, and this is also important, why is the word of God important to the central of the worshiping community of the church? Because the word of God only redeems us with the, with the message of the gospel, but it also revives us. The word of God revives us. The word of God has power to revive the church. And listen, there are many churches across our land that are in desperate need of revival. Not only that, there are whole denominations that won't even exist in two more decades unless they get back to the reviving word of God. Power. See, when we get away from the church, gets away from the word of God, the church begins to die. I read an article this week, and I quote, said that they estimate in that certain denomination that they won't even have any more worshipers by about 2030. There won't be anybody worshiping. They're going to sell their buildings to whatever, whatever, dance hall, whatever, and, and nobody's coming. Why? Because they think they're smarter than God. They think they can take this out of the central part of the worshiping church and think they're going to be clever. There's a lot of clever preachers today. But I plead with us at Trinity Life. We're about to build a new church. Let's let this book be the center of all that we do. The church of God, the, the, the word of God redeems us with the message of Jesus. But the word of God can revive us. See, what's happened is this. Many churches have left the word of God. And they're involved exclusively in social work. And in their minds, they say, I just want the world to be a better place. But they're going about it backwards. They're doing it backwards than the way God does it. So what they do is they leave the word of God and they hand out bottles of water. And they give out gift cards. And they just become charitable. Well, I'm all for that. I'm all for making the world a better place. If somebody needs water, hey, we got water. We'll give it to them. All you do is just turn on the tab and give them water. That's good, right? And a lot of these churches, it's all about social work. And I believe that when the church is revived, a lot of social work will go on. I've never seen Atheist Hospital. But I have seen Baptist and St. Jude and, and Presbyterian hospitals. Isn't that something? When the church is a church, a lot of good gets done in the world. But a lot of these churches have left the word of God. But, but here's the thing. I'm all for making the world a better place. But that will not convert anyone. Right. Are you hearing me, church? That won't convert anyone. What, what needs to happen is this. The only thing that can convert is the word of God and, our, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can convert. And guess what? When you get a converted person, then the world becomes a better place. A bottle of water doesn't help anyone, but the cross of Jesus can take you out of darkness and bring us into light. Amen? Jesus can change hearts. You know, the, the demon-possessed man I, I mentioned last week, he didn't need a bottle of water. He didn't need AA. He needed the demons driven out of him. We got a culture that's got demons in them. The only Jesus can set the captives free. And guess what? You can handle a bottle of water to a guy, he'll still go home and beat his wife. But if he gets saved, he'll love his wife. If he gets saved, he'll bring his kids to church on Sunday. 
He'll get, he'll get rid of the liquor in the, in the liquor cabinet and he'll get the Bible out and instead of the house being a war zone, it'll be a place where Jesus is and a place where the grace of God is. Why? Because it's not just about social work. It's about changing hearts. And when you change hearts, then you change the world. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you. When you change a heart, you change the world. You change a family. The word of God, now think about this. The preaching of the word of God produces a revived church. Here's what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, my soul clings to dust. Revive me according to your words. Do you remember when Israel was in captivity and it was like they were dead? It's like they were dead and there was prophets and statesmen that the Lord would anoint and raise up. Before the captivity, God raised up the great Jeremiah, one of the greatest men to ever live. And he told them, turn back to God, turn back to God. They wouldn't listen. But then they went into captivity and then there, there were prophets of captivity. And one of the prophets of captivity was named Ezekiel. Now Ezekiel's a strange guy. He sees stuff and flying and thrones and He's an amazing guy, but Israel was almost dead. All there was was just a root left. The tree had pretty much been cut down, and it looked like it was over. But I can tell you, it's not over for the Jewish people. Are you hearing me? It's not over for the Jewish people. That land over there, they're trying to barter land, give some to these folks. No, that land has been promised to God, by God, to the Jewish people, in fact, when, if you read the parameters of it, it's going to get bigger. Some of those countries are going to go away in the end when Jesus comes. Why? Because it belongs to them. But it looked like they were done for in the captivity. But God spoke to Ezekiel and gave him a word. Here's what, the, here's what he said would revive them. Ezekiel 37.4. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones. And say to them, O dry bones. See, he's had this vision of these dry bones in the valley. And God gave him this vision, and it's like bones scattered in a desert. And he sees this in a spiritual vision. And these bones are everywhere, and they're dry, and they're all disjointed. It's like a skeleton just spread out everywhere. And God tells him what to do, because what those bones represent is Israel, dead and he says, O dry bones, hear, look at this, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. What was it that revived Israel? It was the word of God. It was those prophecies that began to come to pass. The word never fails. How would God revive a dead church if people would begin to open their hearts in churches across this land? Are you hearing me? If people, if preachers would say, I'm, I'm going to depend not on social work, primarily I'm going to depend on the word of God, and they would begin to thunder the word of God from the pulpit. They'd begin to proclaim Christ. He's Savior and forgiver and, and deliverer. They'd begin to proclaim Christ and begin to declare the word of God. It would revive the church. The church would come into a mighty move of the Holy Spirit. This water gate. Jesus, the living word. Jesus, the, li the spoken word, the word of God. 
How I many you know Jesus' words bring life to us? The power of these words that we have recorded. Jesus stood at Lazarus' tomb and said, remove the stone. And he said, don't you know he's been dead four days? He stinks by now. He said, didn't I tell you that if you would believe that you would see the glory of God? And across that graveyard, the silence that must have been there, the, the weeping that it must have been there, and all of a sudden, Jesus spoke and said, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible says that he came out with grave clothes about him, but he was alive. The words of Jesus. Jesus could mess up a funeral, could he not? He came up to a funeral of a little lady, a widow, her husband's gone, her little son, her young man had died, her only son. And I don't know how it was, but I just think that, you know, Jesus, the, you know, it might have been like this. It might have been like he had not even premeditated this. It wasn't like he woke up in the morning and his, you know, daytime or like, okay, at, at 12, we'll go through Nain and we'll raise the sun. I think it was more like this, a spontaneity, something he felt in his heart. And he's walking by and he sees that casket. He sees that little widow lady and he sees that, that funeral procession, those people walking and they're heading to the graveyard and something in him moves. The Holy Spirit in him spoke to him and he goes over to that casket. The Bible said he speaks to the man. Get up. Just those words. Just a little bit. Of, you know, one, one, two or three words of Jesus can raise the dead. Get up. Get up, I say to you, get up out of that casket. And that young man rose up and began to speak. Why? These words can revive the dead. They can revive dead dreams and dead churches and dead hopes. This, can, this, this book right here can make a powerful Holy Ghost church. You get away from it, the church dies. Oh, there may be a shell for a while. There may be some fleshly, you know, excitement on the surface. But no, no true river. No true river without the book. Think about it. So how does, how does Jesus revive a dead church? The word of God redeems us. The word of God revives us. There's a, there's a church called the, it's a dead church in the Bible. You know, it's in the Bible. It talks about a, a church that is dead. What does that mean? It means that they're going through the, you know, they're the going through the religious motions, but Jesus is not there. They're not saved. They're just religious. They died. Look at it on the screen. Almost done. Revelation 3, 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Is that definitive? Is that clear? You have a name, you're alive. Oh, we're the, we're the on fire church. No, you're not. You're dead. Oh, that's empty. Empty emotionalism. And I like emotion. I'm an emotional person. I want to I wanna worship God. I think, I think only, funeral, only graveyards are quiet. Where there's life, there's going to be some noise. Here it says, you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. What are we going to do with a dead church, Jesus? What is the answer to a dead church? Here's what it says. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. 
that are ready to die. I mean, they're going in the wrong direction. They're not, most of the church is dead. Only a few people have a little bit of life. They're barely hanging on. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Here's the answer. Are you ready? Come on, church. You ready? Look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Remember what you've heard. Remember the gospel. Remember the words of Jesus. Remember what you are to be. Remember the call of God upon your life. Hold fast and repent and watch that I might come and I will not come as a, I will come upon you as a thief. And now not know the hour that I come upon you. Talks about a few names in Sardis who've not defiled their garments, but go down to verse six. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. That's the way to get a revived church. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So what is Jesus saying to the church? He's saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what he's saying. He's saying Isaiah. He's saying Proverbs. He's saying Psalms. He's saying Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He's, the Spirit of God is speaking this book through God-anointed preachers. And the Word of God can revive your home. It can revive your spirit. Oh, don't we need a revived church? Now, I'm, I'm one last thing, and this will be very brief. The Word of God does what? It redeems us, and it revives us. But here's something else. The Word of God rewards us. There's a great reward. There is great reward. There is great spiritual treasure in this book right here. The psalmist said this, moreover by them, by the law, by the words of God, your servant is warned, and by keeping them, there is great reward. I'm going to conclude with five words. Five words that are the rewards, at least some of them, of knowing this blessed book, the living word, Jesus his written word, the, the word of God, the Bible. This book is a book of redemption. This book is a book of reviving. It'll revive you. It'll revive your prayer life. You get in it, you want to tell somebody about Jesus. You get in it, you, you want to repent of your sins. There's life in this book right here. This book right here will make you love your wife and not, and not pick on her like I did mine this morning. We have fun. This book will revive this church. This book will rebuild this church. But there's reward personally in your life to knowing the word of God. Five words, and here they are. It's the words knowing, equipping, overcoming, living, and blessing. The, the, the treasure of knowing God personally. Could there be a higher honor that when I open this book, I get acquainted with the sovereign God of the universe? Isn't that amazing? And I see what he does, and I see his mighty works, and I see his nature, faithful, loving, and holy, and sovereign, and omnipotent, and omniscient, and omni omnipresent. And I, I, I come into personal Knowledge of God, knowing God, not knowing about God, but when we read this word on our knees, we get to know him personally. Not just meet him initially in salvation. Yes, yes, of course. But how much do we know? 
See, the Bible talks about Israel saw his works, but Moses knew his ways. Do you know his ways? You will if you spend time in this book. What a reward. Equipping. When a Christian has had a steady diet of the word of God, they become great servants for the Lord. See, the enemy doesn't want you to get in this book. He knows that you're going to start serving God so awesomely that you're a threat to him. So he fights you. He said, yeah, spend nine hours watching TV. Don't crack the book. Don't meditate on the word of God. But men and women of God who know this book are equipped to serve God powerfully. They become powerful servants. Overcoming. This book right here enables you to overcome the enemy. It's the way Jesus overcame the enemy. Remember? It says in 1 John 2.14, the young men were strong because the word of God was in them and they overcame the wicked one. This book will help you overcome. You can live for God. Living. This book right here, it's like you meditate on the word day and night. You're like a tree planted by rivers of water. You bring forth your fruit in season. You get your heart and life planted in the word of God. It produces a godly life, powerful life, a life that's holy. And then lastly, blessing. Blessing comes. Success comes as we get in this blessed book. Here's what Joshua says. I close with this word. Joshua 1 and 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Then it says, then that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Amen. Amen. The Word of God redeems us, revives us, and it rewards us. Father, today, thank you for your amazing, holy word. We bless you. We praise you. We glorify your awesome, awesome name. Thank you, Lord.